a few weeks ago, we began a journey through the seven churches of the Revelation. Uh, it has been good, difficult at times, and in fact, as we turn to the church at Pergamum, I believe this is probably the most challenging passage that I've preached since I've been here at Jonesboro Heights. May the Spirit of God add His blessing to the reading of His Word. Revelation 2, 12 begins, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Would you pray with me? Good and gracious Father, we come humbly before you. We need you so. We need you in every area of our life. I know there are struggles within this church that I have no idea about, but they're there. And we need you. We have come into your house to be close to you, to worship you, to give you what we believe you deserve, and that is our praise, our adoration, our love, even our lives. We open your word today with the desire to hear your voice. So we pray humbly, come Lord Jesus, by the power of your spirit, speak to us through your word, and we will listen. In Jesus' name, amen. If we left Smyrna, the second church of the book of Revelation, and traveled about 40 miles north and a little bit east, we would run into the very impressive, wonderful city of Pergamum. Pergamum, which is the third book of the Revelation, is the third church. And there in that city of Pergamum, it, we would find one of the most distinguished and culturally diverse cities in all of Asia. Pergamum had the official honor of being the provincial capital of Rome in Asia. Among its notable features and its beauty, it, it had a, an impressive library that had 200,000 volumes in, in that library, impressive by any standard. It was a beautiful city, tiered on top of a great mound, and, and, and it had a, a, an unusual thing that it was also noted for. It was one of the few cities in all of the Roman Empire that could put someone to death if they opposed Rome. The city itself, physically, was just incredible. It was built upon a great mountain, a great dome. 
And at the base of the mountain, they cut into the sides of it. And so at every level, the city was built on these great tiers. And so it had an incredible view, a vista of all of the valleys that surrounded this incredible dome. And on top of this great dome, there was a, a, a wildly beautiful, imaginative, impressive throne. Or it looked like a throne. It was actually a temple that was 800 feet above the ground. It was a temple that people would come from all over to worship Zeus. Well, you don't want to worship Zeus? That's okay. Because you could come to this great city as well, and, and, and you could worship the god Eclipsius. He was the god of healing, and he was represented by a great statue as well of a giant snake. Yeah. You don't like that? Well, you could worship Dionysius. Dionysius was the, the god of grape and harvest, of winemaking and wine and fertility, and he's always popular. Uh, and of course, you also had to come and worship the Caesar because they considered him to be a god as well. A good motto for this city, it was like Pergamum was the salad bar of religious faith. A good motto for the city would be pick a god, any god, because they're all acceptable. Anything goes. And so, to this faithful church surrounded by a city of sin, Jesus sends this message to them. Revelation 2.12 And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Here is the commendation, the well done that we have looked for in every church thus far. This is the well done to Pergamum. First, King Jesus identifies himself as the one with true power. You see, you could look around Pergamum and be truly impressed. What an incredible temple. It's quite a show. You could look at all the incredible statues. And they could even say, we have power over life and death. Jesus responds to them, I am the one who has true power. I am the one with the sharp two-edged sword. I am the one who holds life and death in my hands. He is the one that has triumphed over the second death, over sin, over the stronghold of Satan. And Jesus commends them. He commends one named Antipas, who seemingly was faithful even to his death. Death or his relationship with Christ. I know where you live. I know that you feel sometimes surrounded by evil. And I wonder sometimes if we don't feel the same way. Now I want to be careful here in making my point. Because it seems to me there have been too many Christians that have protested what goes on outside the church loudly, vigorously, and angrily while ignoring the sins within. There has been hypocrisy as we have rightly, but perhaps without sufficient love, spoken against gay marriage, but said a little about defending marriage against a 50% divorce rate within the church. There is not one scripture I can find in support of homosexuality or gay marriage or divorce or living together outside the blessing of God within the gift of marriage. 
And we would desire not to be hypocritical, but faithful to the entire Word of God, knowing that we all fall short. And with great humility, day by day, every one of us today still is in terrible, wondrous need of a Savior. I know where you live. I know you feel surrounded by evil. Did you know that the United States is the number one exporter of pornography in the entire world? Did you know that $13 billion is spent every year in this country alone on pornography? Every year, one million abortions take place all around us. The vast majority are based on convenience and used as a method for birth control, not out of reverence for the mother or for health or for the child. Violence runs rampant in our country. We have more prisoners in our prisons than any nation on earth. Now listen, you may disagree with some of my examples, and I'm open to any conversation because I value you, but, but honestly, looking around us openly and honestly, don't you sometimes feel as if we're surrounded? And so Jesus says to the believers at Pergamum, to the believers here today, I know where you live and I commend you for your faithfulness. But in verse 14, he says, I have a few things against you because you have there are some who hold teaching of Balaam, who kept the teaching of Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So also you have some who in the same way hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now this condemnation requires some explanation because th these references are a little obscure for most of us. You, you can read the story of Balaam in the book of Numbers, but here it is in a nutshell. Balak was the king of Moab. And when he saw the great uh, exodus going on and, and the Jews entering into the promised land, he became very fearful. And so Balak, the king of Moab, sends Balaam to put a curse upon them. Well, Balaam goes and finds himself frightened to do that and actually ends up blessing Israel. Now he has to go back and, and face Balak the king. But he says, don't worry, O king, don't worry, because I've got a better plan. Instead of taking them head on, instead of going out and fighting them, just seduce them into idolatry with the Moabite women. It was an indirect attack against the morals of Israel as they began to worship other gods and, and, and along with their new wives, and, and now they began to partake in the pagan festival. And in suing so, in being so inclusive, some might say, they walked away from the one true God. Likewise, the sin of the Nicolaitans, what they saw was they, they saw no problem in accommodating some of the, the pagan practices. Eat meat sacrificed to idol? Okay. Meat was rare back then. Anytime that you could sit down and have a great steak, man, that was worth doing. Sacrificed to idol? Who cares? No problem. Participating in the pagan festivals? Well, when in Rome, do as the Romans. Even if it includes some sexual acts as some kind of perverted worship? Sure. Accommodation. Seduction. Compromise. It didn't happen all at once. These were good-intentioned people. 
But as Paul says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. Or in other words, a little sin allowed into the body can affect the entire church. Compromise. Do we compromise today? Do people of faith compromise? Don't get me wrong. I don't think compromise is always a dirty word. In fact, I wish some of our Republicans and our Democrats could, could work a little bit closer together, that they could find some things to compromise on. If you looked any one of them in the face and said, do you believe that we should care for those that can't care for themselves? I'm sure every one of them would say yes. Now, what's that look like? I, I don't know, but certainly there must be some compromise. Any Bible-believing Christian knows that we're to care for those that can't care for themselves. We're to care for widows. We're to care for the orphans. We might have different views on how to do that, but somehow there must be compromise that will meet needs and a plan that we can all celebrate. Then again, there are the non-negotiables of faith. Let me stress, Jesus isn't talking to the unbelievers out there, is he? These are to the seven churches, the seven communities of faith. It's not to the unbelievers, it's to us. The truth is, I expect little of the unbeliever. They aren't the ones where the the temple, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the ones that Jesus calls to be the Lord of our life. We are the ones. I don't expect too much of them But Jesus expects such an incredibly high standard of holiness to those that would follow him. So do we compromise? Here's some hints to help with the question. Compromise might sound like, well, at least I am a Christian. At least I go to church. At least I'm better than. At least I'm not as bad as those I see on reality TV shows. There's a high standard. Or it's no big deal. Or I can always ask forgiveness afterwards. Or God understands. So do we compromise? Pergamum was like the salad bar of the religious cult. Do we sometimes do the same thing? Do we pick and choose what we want on our religious salad plate? I'll have a lot of forgiveness, please. I love forgiveness. Just pile it high. How about some grace? Oh, I love grace. How about forgiveness? Oh, I love forgiveness. Salvation? Oh, yes, sprinkle it all over. Obedience? Kind of running out of room. Faithfulness? Holiness? No room left on the plate. It troubles me deeply as I look out into your faces, especially those that don't know me that somehow might come in for the first time and think, well, this is one of those churches. This is one of those angry churches. This isn't about being angry. This is simply about, this is the passage that we have come to in the Scripture. We don't turn away from any part of the Scripture, do we? Forgive me if I've chosen my pet peeves over others, but... And I, and I certainly wouldn't want to come across legalistic, but do we compromise when we choose the sporting event over keeping the Sabbath? What do we teach our children when we let them set the agenda? 
We teach them that they can have a little cheerleading and a, a little football and a little Jesus. But there's nothing little about Jesus. And he deserves everything, I tell you what. Do we compromise when we watch television shows that make sexuality a punchline? Do we compromise when we listen to music that degrades women, treats them violently or like prostitutes, and makes idols out of wealth? And I'm not just talking about hip-hop. I think country western can be just as guilty or most of secular music. Do we compromise when our language is no different than our non-believers, our co-workers, our fellow students? Do we compromise when we withhold the tithe? When we fail to stand up for our beliefs? When we fail to share the gospel? It's okay. God understands. Here's the thing. He does understand. He's, it's nothing new to him, but he does not tolerate it. Because the Lord of the church says this, Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them, those who compromise. I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth, the same mouth that was so powerful that it spoke creation into being. He who has an ear, let him hear. Truly, even in this moment, what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes, to those who are faithful, to those that don't compromise to the non-negotiables, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. These are the kind of words that frighten us away from the book of Revelation because they are hard to understand. What is Jesus saying about the hidden manna? You see, in Pergamum, to be invited to this great party, to have this meat sacrificed to idol, to have a wonderful seat at the table, man, that meant everything. Jesus says, hold fast to your faith, and I'm going to invite you to a great party, to a great celebration, to a great banquet that will not last a day or a month, but it will last for all eternity. The white stone, take your commentary and take your chances. One commentary I read this week says that that white stone was what was used in a, in a courtroom. And for one that was found not guilty, or in other words, one who was found to be faithful, they would receive the white stone. Another commentary said this. They said that, that when you were invited to what? That great banquet, that that's how it would be. That would be the invitation. It would be like a, 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 an embossed invitation. Here, come to all who would be faithful. Either way, understand that a true disciple, as a true disciple, it's going to cost you something. And the cost, says Lord Jesus, will all be worth it. How do we keep our faith and not compromise? John 17, 16 says this, they are not of the world, speaking of his apostles, speaking of those that would follow, even as I am not of the world. It's where we get the phrase, the expression that we are to be in the world, but not of the world. And that's a trick, isn't it? Do we cordon ourselves off behind stained glass walls? No. Are we to get fighting mad and draw deep lines of division? No, no more division. How do we sincerely welcome and love all who enter into this church, accepting them where they are 
and still hold fast to our faith. Just a few thoughts on that. First, make sure that we know the difference between personal preference and the non-negotiables. Singing out of the hymnals or singing from the screen is a personal preference, but keeping Jesus as our first love is our first priority in a non-negotiable. Secondly, with humility, we don't pick and choose which are acceptable and unacceptable sins. Pride, selfishness, judgment, unforgiveness, and jealousy are just as sinful as any other list that we might wake, and we are still all in desperate need of a Savior. Third, being in the world and not of the world is as complex a command as any of the Scriptures and requires of us, first and foremost, an intimate, personal, loving relationship with Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit, through prayer, through the study of His Word. Without this level of intimacy, we haven't a chance. We need His wisdom to walk the difficult and narrow path of in the world and not of it. Finally, we love each one that comes one at a time. There is no cookie-cutter solution. We love not to gain some numerical mark on the wall or to regain the glory days, but simply because Jesus loved first. And now what else can we do except love others in the same way? Romans 12.2 says this, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. As we consider the compromise at Pergamum, as we consider the response of our Savior, which category best describes your life? Are you being conformed to the world? Have you compromised and little by little are becoming more and more like the world around you? Or through your ongoing relationship with Jesus Christ, are you being transformed into His image? We sang today. We hear the words, may the Spirit of God speak to each heart today. And truly, may we have a hear, an ear to hear. Would you pray with me? Holy Father, we thank you for your word that you have given us. This wonderful gift, this life-giving gift. And we would not shy away from any of it. But we confess, Father, sometimes it is hard. It's hard for us to look at ourselves. It's hard, so much easier, truly, to look outside, to point fingers at others. But we are the ones who call you Lord. Master. So we pray today by the power of your Spirit that you would speak to us and that we would have the courage and the strength to respond in a way that is a blessing and pleasing to your heart. Speak to each one. In Jesus' name, amen.